All right, I'm with Georgie. Hey, what's up, Kevin? And uh, first I want to ask, is alternative energy, is that a controversial term opposed to, um, don't they have different terms for it? You know how they have like different terms for AR or an assault rifle, or yeah. they have different terms for climate change, depending on which kind of political spectrum you're on? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I know there's different terms. I don't know if it's controversial or not. So you normally hear like alternative energy, clean, renewable. Uh, I think those are probably the three most common terms. Okay. Uh, alternative probably just meaning different than fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are the main source of energy we use and uh, alternative being something else. Uh, I think that's essentially the definition of clean energy as well, just not fossil fuels. Uh, for clean energy. So what would be some examples of renewable energy? So renewable is uh, clean energy that uh, you don't consume the resource as you produce it. So uh, hydroelectric, uh, you make dams, right? And the water always just comes back from rain. Uh, you get wind and solar, uh, both. Uh, obviously solar energy from the sun. Wind is just uh, wind power with those wind turbines. But I've actually heard uh, had a couple people complain to me about wind power. They're worried that <laughs> I think this is ridiculous, but maybe maybe it's uh, founded. I got one buddy that's terrified that we're going to ruin the Earth's uh, rotational energy, and essentially is uh, that possible? Well, yeah, yeah, it, it technically is possible, but the order of magnitude you'd have to do is uh, pretty high. So angular momentum is conserved in objects, right? So every single time we spin a wind, spin a wind turbine, we're taking that angular momentum from something. Uh, and so wow. you get an input from the sun when the sun heats up the earth, and, uh, but uh, that's, that's, that's what causes the winds to move. But yeah, the angular momentum uh, wind turbines technically take it out of the earth. Really? Yeah. So if you have tons of just uh, turbines, like yeah. all over the place, that could potentially what what would be the worst outcome? Uh, I mean, you could stop the rotation of the Earth if you put a shit ton of them. And really? <laughs> really? All, I mean, <laughs> the Earth's pretty massive in comparison, and so I think it's a ridiculous worry. But I have one buddy that's terrified of it. <laughs> is he an engineer? Uh, I actually don't know what his background is, but he's pretty smart. Whenever we whatever talk about it is, he's physics stuff. Yeah. So. So what would be your um? What are your go-to kind of yes. alternative energy sources that so, you would recommend or? So the three main options, uh, or four main options, uh, you got the three renewable options, which are going to be hydroelectric, wind, and solar, and then uh, nuclear being the non-renewable option. But uh, if any calculations you do on nuclear for the amount of uranium on the planet, and then uh, if even if we used it, everybody on the planet for all their energy needs, uh, really pessimistic scenarios are like two, three hundred years till we start having problems. And so, uh, while nuclear is not technically renewable, uh, we have a large time frame where we wouldn't have to worry about uh, the source of producing, uh, getting that uranium. Uh, there's a lot of uranium just in the ocean. You can filter it out, out of the ocean. And then there's another consideration there of thorium uh, or using different fuels than just uranium-235. Uh, that would probably be way too much to go into, those different fuels and different usages and mm -hmm. when we expect those are going to run out. Uh, but right now, looking at it in comparison to fossil fuels, we have a long time that we could use nuclear. Basically, enough time that we could hopefully develop something better like fusion. How long are, is there estimated um, to be fossil fuels uh, before they're used up? 
that one's a tough one because people keep using giving different estimates. There's plenty of past estimates that have uh, fossil fuels running out before today, uh, and so it's really tough to know. I think most people would agree probably under 200 years, uh, but we fracking technology came around and basically postponed that timeline. Old uh, oil and natural gas uh, gatherings, uh, there was estimates that it was going to be much sooner, and then it's like, well, now we can actually get oil and natural gas and things different ways. So what is fracking? It's kind of a basic Shit, man, question. Not my, not my expertise oh, okay. at all. Uh, I know they use like hydraulic uh, pressure inside a system to basically break up rock, but uh, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm, in order to yeah. get I'm some fossil fuel. I'm not very with the gathering of it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they, get, they get natural gas, I, I think, out of it, or a type of oil. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what so what was the other one besides nuclear energy that you mentioned? Okay, so there was nuclear, hydro, uh, solar, and wind power. Th those are the main four alternatives other than basically fossil fuels. And uh, of those four, would nuclear be... So I'm, I'm a huge nuclear proponent. I think it's the only acceptable alternative. Uh, the other three, uh, they have so many limitations on either of them. So I can just quickly go through yeah, why, why those are bad. Uh, so... Hydro, uh, we've, been, we've been killing our hydro production over the last 50 years. So the U.S. actually, if you look at renewable energy production, I think in the 1950s and 60s, uh, we either had very similar amounts of renewable energy production or even more than we do today just because we use so many dams. And so we were putting up dams everywhere, and we love dams, and we were producing a decent amount of renewable energy from the dams. But dams obviously have their issues. So first off, location, right? You have to have a river you can dam. Uh, that's the number one limitation for dams. Uh, there's just not enough rivers. We can't dam enough rivers on the whole planet and produce energy for everybody on the whole planet. It's just not feasible. So just inherently, hydroelectric is not an acceptable replacement for fossil fuels, just based on the amount of energy available for doing that. Second off, you got to consider it fucks up ecosystems and dams those rivers up. It messes up fish. Uh, people live in the valleys where we flood uh, and we create the lakes to make the dams. Dams break, like up in Rexburg. Which dam was that? Teton. Teton Dam, right? So dams, dams break, and so there's there's a lot of issues with dams. But it's just it's you know I, I support dams and I, I like using them, but there I can I can definitely see the negatives there, and it's not an acceptable replacement for fossil fuels. So mm -hmm. uh, the other two that people always jump onto and think are the best, and uh, they're worried about nuclear because of the waste, it, wind and solar. They have big problems too that most people don't realize. And so the, by far the biggest problem with wind and solar both is battery technology. So right now, energy consumption happens throughout the day and night and we need to be able to produce energy to meet that demand. And it's very easy with fossil fuels. If the peak energy consumption for the day is at 7 p.m. when everybody gets off work and they turn on their TVs and their AC goes on, uh, you just burn more fossil fuels down at the plant, right? That you can't do that with wind and solar panels. Uh, so solar panels produce their peak energy at noon. So when the sun's out, uh, you get your most energy at noon. But since we're not consuming our most energy at noon and peak energy consumption happens usually later in the day, it depends on the time of year uh, and definitely location, right? So if you're further north and it's dark, your peak energy consumption might start at 5 p.m. because uh, mm -hmm. it's starting to get dark. But uh, it's almost never at noon that humans consume their peak energy consumption. And uh, pretty much all societies consume energy later at night. Uh, so even if your peak's not at noon, you're definitely consuming energy at 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 12 p.m., and solar produces nothing then. 
And so solar produces all its energy in the middle of the day and some hours around it. And so if solar panels were your only energy source in a city, you need a shit ton of batteries. So you produce a whole bunch of energy at noon and then you got all these batteries. The batteries store they store what the energy, energy so was them made. later, right? Because okay. you're not producing demand, you're not producing energy when it's being consumed. And so nobody really considers this because right now solar panels can produce, you know, 10% of a city's energy consumption. And so they produce this 10% at noon. And then uh, we just don't burn as many fossil fuels at noon because solar panels are coming in and giving us all this cheap energy at noon and like, oh, that's great. And so we reduce our energy consumption of fossil fuels then and it kind of offsets. But if you don't have fossil fuels to offset these solar panels, if it's just this city's entirely solar based, you need a ton of batteries. And that increased the cost. So nobody, nobody realizes that when you hear solar panel numbers, it's always these very, very optimistic scenarios. You know, it's gonna be in Phoenix, Arizona, a place with no clouds and it's south, so it's really hot and it gets a lot of this sun. And then the numbers they tell you is without battery use. It's the energy production you're getting at noon from Phoenix and it's just immediate consumption of that energy. And it's like, this is how much it costs. It's a viable, it's a viable source. Well, no, now if we start considering now we need to pay for batteries and battery technology, it increased the cost. Different locations. Is it going to work up in Washington where it's cloudy? It's further north, so the uh, angle of the sun exposure on the earth is already worse. You get more cloud exposures. So solar panels really fall through uh, in a widespread use if they're not subsidizing another energy use, just like the dams, right? They, mm -hmm. they, can't, they couldn't be our main source of energy unless we had really, really big battery banks. And even if we had really big battery banks, places like Washington or Idaho, it would be still, still very poor numbers. And so the numbers you're seeing quoted for solar panels and how efficient they are and how quickly they pay themselves back in all of this, it's uh, really most optimistic case scenarios with them producing only a portion of the energy consumption. So their numbers of how expensive they can be can go up five to 10 times to 20 times as much, depending on the scenario of what you're using. Once you use those batteries, do you have to then find a place to discard them? Uh, so, or can those be reused? So, uh, it depends on the type of battery. Uh, I'm, you, can, you don't discard everything, but uh, in how long they last. I'm, I'm definitely less familiar with uh, current battery technology and where it's going, but I've seen stat, uh, numbers on how much they cost, and so I'm, expensive. I'm, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It's it's more expensive than not using them. And any numbers, any number you see about solar panels today is almost certainly not showing. Oh, there's extra cost for batteries if this was the full mm. production. And so, and what about also repairs? I mean, I've heard that um, repairing is also expensive. Taking yeah. care of those turbines and yeah, yeah. So uh, another another thing I'm less familiar with the repairing uh, and the statistics there. But uh, yeah, I, I think pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. And then uh, wind has the exact same issues that solar has that I was going into. Uh, wind usually produces energy at the beginning and the end of the day. Uh, and so it doesn't produce power at perfect time frames. Usually the transition from night to day uh, creates a lot of wind, right? Uh, and then it's also very, very location-based. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is the three uh, alternative energies, hydro, wind, and solar, they're not, they're not gonna work for 100% energy production. They can only be kind of like subsidies, like just, oh, you know, we use 20% solar here, 18% wind here, and 10% hydro. Uh, you're never gonna be, oh, we're entirely wind power city. This whole city's run on wind. Uh, well, I shouldn't say never. There's a lot of areas where wind is uh, very viable. North Dakota, uh, 
wind energy up there is probably so cheap that it's not that big a deal to put a whole bunch of batteries in to mm -hmm. power when your wind's not blowing you use these batteries so i shouldn't say no cities are going to be like that but widespread use across the whole u.s right. uh, in definitely in current technology it's ridiculous to think that wind's going to be 100 percent u.s energy production and iceland i know is i think fully geothermal yeah isn't it that makes sense and but uh, that but that's such a small area i mean relative to the rest of the world so yeah so geothermal is another option for alternative uses but yeah you need <laughs> geothermal energy so we could i think uh the area around yellowstone if we wanted to just go pillage yellowstone mm -hmm. put in a few geothermal plants they could be entirely geothermal cities <laughs> <laughs> right right but, but it would uh, it wouldn't it certainly wouldn't be able to be enough for yeah no the wide, country widespread use unless there's and, and uh, all of this uh is talking about current technology and current predicted technology right if we develop some drilling method where we could drill down in the center of the earth really easily and get the geothermal energy from there who knows you know mm -hmm. uh, not even the center but deeper down i i don't know what that scenario would be but yeah currently geothermal not not acceptable at all is widespread use so the use of uranium would be number one yeah so in my mind by far the best scenario we can be working towards is nuclear use and uh, nuclear plants produce if you compare any plants uh, other than uh, fossil fuels which you can just burn more or less oil more or less coal to meet demand nuclear plants produce the closest curve to human demand because it's just a perfectly flat constant production right and so human demand throughout the day does go up and down but being able to produce just a constant power throughout all the day uh, with a nuclear plant is uh, the best. So if you ran a city that was 100% nuclear based, you still need batteries as well, because when peak power uh, goes up at 7pm, your nuclear plant has just a constant flat curve production, uh, you're going to need to store some energy at two in the morning, when you nobody's consuming energy, right, you're going to need to store some energy then to provide energy at 7pm. Uh, but you wouldn't need as many batteries as wind or solar, uh, because your nuclear plant is producing just a nice constant energy. Well, then why are some people against it? Is it because of the... It's the waste. It's the waste? 100%. They're, they're scared of the nuclear waste, which is a very valid reason. Uh, but the two biggest scenarios in anybody's mind when they talk about nuclear power and uh, basically scary accidents, you have Three Mile Island and you have uh, Chernobyl, obviously. So uh, Chernobyl being the biggest, worst one, and people watch the HBO... Uh, it's not a documentary. The... Uh, TV show and they see some stuff from that and they hear what people talk about and they get just they just get really scared uh, over something like that but give give a little overview of what Chernobyl yeah so was really really terrifying situation but uh, it's what's called a positive temperature coefficient of reactivity core and our cores in the United States PWRs pressurized water reactors uh, they operate on a negative temperature coefficient reactivity. So the main difference between these two is that in our core, when power rises, it causes water to, water to expand. And when water is expanding, it becomes less dense. And uh, inside the nuclear reactor, we thermalize neutrons, basically slow them down so they can cause fission. And so when our water expands, the neutrons aren't thermalized as much. And so anytime power rises, it actually kind of kills itself. So rising power expands water, causes power to not rise as much. And so our cores can't undergo a Chernobyl-type explosion because of this negative temperature coefficient reactivity. Uh, it's just impossible. Uh, you can have a steam explosion in our cores, but you can't have a nuclear type that, uh, where the core just went super critical, which then caused the top of the reactor to blow off. 
In Chernobyl, the positive temperature coefficient reactivity allowed when power goes up, water expands, and in their core, they used uh, carbon control rods, graphite control rods, um, in order to thermalize their neutrons, they didn't use water. And so when their water expanded, it was actually a good thing for them because their water operated as what's called a poison. And so it would pull the neutrons out. And so in their core, essentially power goes up, causes water to get hotter, which causes power to go up, which causes water to get hotter. It's a um, cycle, right? It mm -hmm. repeats. Whereas our core is the reverse. Power goes up, water gets hotter. That actually causes power to go down. And so uh, two different designs in cores. And in the case of the Chernobyl scenario, they had that positive temperature coefficient reactivity core. They had designed around it uh, with control rods, and they had some specifications of the number of control rods that had to be at the bottom of the core at all times. Uh, it's been a while since I taught this. Uh, I had a whole uh, lecture I'd give to students on it, but I want to say it's 19 core rods they had to keep at the bottom of the core. Uh, whatever the number is, it was some number, 11, 19. And, uh, the bureaucrats in Russia decided they wanted to do a test of their nuclear facilities. And so they came in and they said, you know what, uh, we're going to basically cause the very worst possible problem ever. And it seems ridiculous that you want to test the worst possible problem. Like you yeah. want to, you want to know that your core is going to live if the worst possible problem happens, but what's the point of testing it? Yeah. Like if it happens, it's the worst, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so anyways, the worst possible problem for them is a loss of steam demand. And so, uh, they essentially, a loss of steam demand is your steam turbine that's spinning and, uh, from your reactor gets hot, right? Makes the steam, turns the steam turbine. And so the bureaucrats came in and they said, we're going to do this. And the engineers were like, no fucking way. Uh, and so the day engineering crew, they couldn't do it. They wanted to perform this test and they're like, this is ridiculous. Why would you ever perform this test? And uh, they essentially said, all right. And the beer cast left and they came back at two in the morning when the night crew was there, who was much more junior. And they said, hey, we're gonna perform this test. And the night crew was like, well, you're the boss, let's do it. Uh, so they secured steam demand, uh, causing essentially the biggest casualty that plant could uh, have. I mean, other than getting hit by like a missile or something, but like on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, something that's, I guess, somewhat possible uh, anyways, they secure steam demand and, uh, they had a couple other malfunctions in their plant at the time. And then in order to keep the test going, the lead engineer of the plant, you can go watch the, uh, the history channel, uh, like kind of hour and a half long talk about Chernobyl actually has this guy on there. Uh, so, um, he lived the majority of the plant workers at the plant when the accident happened lived, uh, Anyways, he, in order to keep the test going, he has to violate procedures in order to keep the plant active. And so he pulls these control rods off the bottom of the core to keep power high enough in order to do this test for these bureaucrats. So not only have they just done the worst possible casualty they could incur, but now they're violating procedures in order to perform this test. Just two ridiculous scenarios. Uh, and then there was some other plant problems uh, that, that were happening at the time. Of the, at the time. And yeah, it blows up. Uh, it's what? quite a while ago, over 50 years ago, and mm -hmm. uh, old technology that we've never even used in the US. We don't use positive temperature coefficient activity cores here. And uh, that was self-imposed. Self-imposed, 100%. They caused the casualty, they violated the procedures, they <laughs> they did a lot of bad stuff to cause, wow. to cause this to happen. Uh, yeah. And so um, a lot of people, like my parents and my parents' generation and the generation above them, they have this, a fear of it because of World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everybody definitely links nuclear power to uh, nuclear explosions and the atomic bombs that were dropped. 
but the reality of that occurring is yeah i mean even in chernobyl well. scenario it wasn't a nuclear explosion on the level of a nuclear warhead it was just an explosion caused by a supercritical core whereas in our case you would never get an explosion caused by a supercritical core here in the u.s you would just get uh possibly a steam uh steam getting too hot and rupturing a steam line you, c you couldn't get a supercritical core blowing off the top of the reactor okay and so I remember you, I think, describing to me, or someone who had spoken to you, was telling me about how, how just how much more effective and efficient nuclear energy is in the case of just um, giving energy to a submarine. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I got to be careful talking here because uh, any specific numbers I give you would be <laughs> classified okay. when speaking about submarines. But uh, I, I wouldn't say efficient. Um, the cool thing about it is, is it's just uh, constant, right? You don't need to refuel, which obviously is a huge benefit for nuclear submarines. They don't have to come back up and get new fuel. Uh, and so any, oh, wow. any uh, non-nuclear submarine produces CO2. And so uh, when you, uh, in order to charge up their batteries, they basically have to come to the surface and run a diesel, uh, diesel generator in order and so that's that co2 you can't do that underwater well you can but it's going to be a dead giveaway of your submarine if you're running a diesel generator and pumping up co2 uh and right. you actually need oxygen so you would need some line to draw out but even uh and that's how they recharge their batteries they're essentially electric submarines and then they still need to take on fuel right so the submarine just can't go forever they need fuel whereas our our submarines they can last over 20 years so if the people on board had enough food uh, it could just go for that 20 years and never come up. Really? Just yeah. 20 years it can be going around? Well, it, it, yeah, so it really depends on the uses. I guess if they were at full full head flank, which is the fastest the submarine goes, it would be shorter than that. They, but they So if you were to use that energy then, that nuclear energy for um, lighting a city, yeah, um, are, is it as long-lasting? I mean, is it as... So, as so uh, current cores, they use uh, nuclear, uh, they bring in uranium, the nuclear cores do, and uh, they usually only have about a year to a year and a half worth of uranium at a time. And then they just refuel the core. And so they just refuel it over and over uh, again into the same core and they just bring in more uranium. And okay. so uh, they can last as long as they keep bringing uranium in. And, and it's clean though, right? Yeah, so there's no nuclear energy is clean. There's no CO2 byproducts. There's no uh, just pumping, you know, ash or whatever leaves when coal's done uh, up into the atmosphere. You know, no greenhouse gases from it. Uh, the only greenhouse gases produced from the plant are going to be during the actual construction when you have to use, uh, you know, any type of equipment that's dependent on gasoline. So, you know, pouring cement has some carbon cost. And, so and what do you what do they do with the waste? So uh, currently, they take it out and they bury it in places like Idaho and right. uh, you know, get, uh, Idaho National Laboratory. We all grew up next to. They got reprocessing facilities out there, uh, similar sites like that. Uh, that's definitely the number one concern on everybody's mind is how is the waste processed and uh, worrying about nuclear accidents that happen uh, and. I'm, I'm scared of both of those things too. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fall asleep every night and have nuclear waste uh, just down the road from me. But in the end, the only other option is to just continue to con uh, pollute the atmosphere. Uh, I think anybody that's kidding themselves thinking that solar wind 
and I mean, most people that like solar and wind and oppose nuclear energy don't support hydro either. So essentially, people are saying solar and wind are going to take over and be our new bright shining stars that take up the torch. Yeah, you see like Leonardo DiCaprio. And yeah. He has he shows how his house is run by the panels and everything. It's yeah. like, oh, that's great. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's just I don't see it being a widespread solution. And I think uh, pretending it is going to be while you're happy to use coal every day. Like this is what I talk to a lot of people about when they're like terrified of nuclear and they tell me they're always like, oh, we can just use solar and wind. It's so much better than nuclear. And I'm like, it's not happening, though. We're not using solar and wind. It's not replacing fossil fuels. And it's because it's too expensive. We, and that, that's what most people don't think about is any time you make the argument, oh, solar and wind are so much safer and this is just the better option. Well, sure, if we use it, you know, if, if solar and wind replace fossil fuels entirely, but they're not because they cost too much. And so I, I just don't see solar and wind replacing fossil fuels. And so while we're pretending and acting like they're going to, the economy of the situation, the actual cost is what's driving it. And poor people that want to live a better standard of living, you know, people over in China that are finally getting electricity, they're not just gonna be like, yeah, you're right. We should, you know, get one quarter of the energy we we're trying to get, you know, we just powered a city of a million people. We should be powering cities of 200,000 people for 10 times the cost or whatever it is, right? Right, right. And so I just, I just don't see it happening. Obviously, hyperbole numbers there, but. So what would be, um, so other than nuclear energy, um, that, that would be your number one? By far. Um, I mean, I want fusion, which is also nuclear energy. Uh, that's the pipe dream of anybody that wants clean energy in the future. Uh, basically just is that renewable uh well not technically renewable but you combine uh hydrogen so hydrogen or helium uh, possibly lithium basically low weight low atomic weight elements you combine them together and then depending on how hot we could get our core you keep combining them together uh essentially what the sun does and so while it's not renewable uh, the source for fusion is so abundant i mean hydrogen is the most abundant atom in the universe uh, that it's essentially just infinite. If we had fusion going on, we're not going to burn up all the water on the planet in right. the next in the next ten thousand years. So, in a way, it is kind of renewable. It's, right? it's essentially renewable in the because when people say that the sun is renewable, it's yeah. not right. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, but perfect. Yeah, so fusion would be similar to that. You know, okay. The sun's going to burn out, and we're going to burn all our water into. We're right. Gonna turn it into lithium. So, <laughs> what are the countries that are at the forefront of it? Fusion. Hi. Not fusion, <laughs> I guess nuclear. And are are anyone? Is there a movement for the fusion? Uh, I mean, like I said, I think anybody, any anybody that's really geeking out on uh, power production, fusion is the pipe dream. Uh, it's just really, really hard to do. Okay. And so, uh, is you, it also dangerous? Um. Yeah. If you, if you watch Spider Man Two, that's the best example I always give for people with uh, fusion. Uh, Dr. Octopus talking about holding the power of the sun in the palm of his hand. It's essentially you just, I mean, this is like a nuclear physics lesson that I'm going into. I try to explain it. Uh, but yeah, just anything. Uh, there's a basically a scale that when you break up heavy atoms or you put together small atoms, it releases energy. And it's, and it's based on just nuclear and uh, atomic physics and the reason why uh, this was like eight lectures in my class going through this so uh geez not going to be able to go into depth on this but <clears throat> yeah well, a lot of energy are there any um you're a fan of science fiction 
Yes. Are there any science fiction writers or anything that kind of play with the idea of alternative energy? Hmm. So, I mean, pretty much all science fiction writers have some energy source they talk about in almost, it's almost always just fusion, but uh, depending so on... So they do use fusion in, in their stories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's usually what powers spaceships that are traveling far. I think if you watch Interstellar, uh, I would imagine they say they use fusion for their cores at some point. As That's usually, cool. That's usually what uh, is used in large interstellar travel. Uh, in But, I mean, nobody nobody knows how it would work. It's more of just, oh, the fusion drive at the back. Right. <laughs> I think it's Star Trek. That's and people like use. me who watch it, they go, oh, wow. Well, yeah, I mean, it's sure. not like I know how it would work either. <laughs> <laughs> the big problem with using nuclear energy in space is you need a heat sink. And so you need... You What's need that? Uh, so anytime you... So current nuclear power, what you do is you heat up water and the water turns into steam and turns a turbine, right? But in order to use that same water and send it back through in order to turn the turbine again, you have to condense it into uh, mm. water again, right? It's gotta come back from steam. And so you need a heat sink to do that into. So that's easy here, uh, river. You just send a river through uh, and uh, you don't have the actual water that's in the plant touch the river. It just runs through some tubes that they touch each other, right? It's basically a heat exchanger and cools down your steam, puts it back into water so you can go turn the turbine again, right? In space, what would be your heat sink? Uh, you're basically just on a ship. And so how would you cool it down? Essentially, your only heat sink is space. So you would just need radiating heat to cool down your plant, which would be extremely difficult. So that's a hurdle that Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's really tackled on how to get over. Yeah. Although our space flight isn't to the level where we're trying to put nuclear nuclear propulsion on uh, spaceships yet. Yeah, seriously. So what was the the uh, operation that Elon Musk and SpaceX did recently? Ooh, I'm actually not very much uh, familiar with that or caught up on it. It was just. They, I, they think it was like, I think it was like. I think I think it was the first <laughs> private. Yeah, in the U.S. Uh, since they stopped the space shuttle, right? I I, I think so. Yeah, I'm, I haven't really. And I wonder if that. Elon Musk is. Uh, I'm sure he entertains these ideas of <laughs> fusion reactors, fu on. fusion reactors, and everything. Spaceship. Um. So, uh, what sci-fi books have you been reading lately? So I just got off a kick of Robert Heinlein. Uh, back in high school, my favorite sci-fi book was *Stranger in a Strange Land* by him. And so I just went back through and I read that again. I read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress and Starship Troopers. So probably his most famous books. The, oh, he wrote all of those? He wrote all three of those. Those uh, are all great titles too. Late 50s, early 60s, I believe, uh, time frame. Was he famous in his lifetime? I don't know. I actually don't know any of the history of him. I just know that like sci-fi wise, he's one of the greats, you know, and if you, if you read science fiction... And you're like, oh, I'm a science fiction nerd. If you haven't read Heinlein, somebody will turn their nose down at you. Is he American? Uh, yeah, he's an American writer. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. I didn't realize what it was about until I just read it. Uh, it's about a col penal colony on the moon, essentially uh, Australia. And they, they undergo a revolt uh, to basically uh, secede from Earth. It's oh, pretty, really? It's a pretty cool idea. That is a cool yeah. idea. So Battleship Troopers, you were describing Starship to me. Troopers. Starship Troopers. What is Battleship Troopers? Is that? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's just something I made up. Starship Troopers. Um, there was a popular movie that came out yeah. years and years ago. But the based off of that book, which I didn't know. I just watched the movie and it's... Is it not good? Well, it's... it's. I mean, I liked it when I was younger. So maybe some nostalgia there for liking it. But uh, the first... This is the first time I watched the movie since reading the book and it 
does not follow the book at all. And the, the book's pretty long? Uh, shit, I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, decently long, maybe 200 pages, 300 pages. I thought what was cool about it, you're describing to me that in this world with Starship Troopers, they discourage people rather than encourage people to join the military. Yeah, so uh, I thought the book was just going to be all shooting aliens uh, when I first started reading it. But yeah, it's all about the military and civic philosophy behind space fighting, I guess. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, they discourage people from joining the military because in their world, uh, the whole world is one federation and uh, anybody that joins the military gets to vote. And so uh, Heinlein's idea is that uh, you need to sacrifice for the greater good in order to have the basically best scenario for the people in your mind when you make decisions. And so they don't want people to become citizens. They don't want them to vote unless they actually want to sacrifice their personal belongings, their life. They want to make a sacrifice for the greater good, and in which case you're allowed to vote in yeah, so you'll be... Is it, so is it based off like a futuristic Earth? 100%. Okay. Uh, they don't really go into much about what's going on on Earth. Uh, they, they talk a little bit about uh, the start of the book. The main character, Rico, is in high school, essentially. And he has a moral philosophy professor, which is just a old uh, combat veteran. And this guy is essentially the guy that teaches people about what it means to be a citizen, what it means to fight... Uh, what the purpose of the government is, that type of thing. But he's always discouraging everybody in the class, basically like, you're all a bunch of pussies, you could never join up, you could never make the military, uh, the mobile infantry. I think that's kind of cool, actually. It's, Rather it's, than it's very the, interesting. the lies that, uh, what are they called, recruiters, Yeah. sometimes promise. And so I felt like this was kind of the premises of the book, and then the first thing you see on the movie is an ad to join the military. It's like, join up, do your part. And it's like, this was literally, the purpose of the book was the opposite. And I wonder if uh, in Battleship, Battleship? Starship. Starship. I'm mixing it up with the, there's a board game, Battleship. <laughs> the biggest um, board game. Yeah, I like that board game. But uh, Starship Troopers, is there a definite enemy? Yeah, so they call them the bugs. <laughs> They're oh, just cool. An intelligent an intelligent species that looks like oh, I can't remember the description all I can think of is the movie now <laughs> so like in Ender's Game spiders. they call them aren't the enemies called buggers yeah he calls them buggers I think Ender's Game definitely uh, picked up off of Starship Troopers there for that yeah and you've read um, Ender's Game I have read Ender's Game I, I love that book so I read Ender's Game like 10 or 15 years ago and I don't remember much of it but I remember really liking it and remember being impressed that Orson Scott Card, uh, he a Mormon like us, yeah, a Mormon, <laughs> who wrote how like teenage boys talk. Do you know what I mean? So he didn't yeah. hold that back. He didn't clean it up, and I just thought that his uh, representation of a teenage boy was very accurate. And then also just the intensity of it. Yeah, it's violent. <laughs> the violence of it, the warfare of it, and um, have you read his other ones? Yeah, so I read uh, I read the whole entire Ender's Game uh, series. Uh, I think Speaker for the Dead. I, I like that one a lot. Right afterwards, but is that the one that is in Beans? No, no. So Beans is the uh, oh, that's Ender's Shadow. Ender's Shadow. Yeah, and I did read that one as well. I liked I liked both of them. Uh, but no, the, it's Ender. He goes to another world and he discovers an intelligent species. If I remember the right, they're like pigs. Okay. Little, little little guys. I mean, I read these in high school too. So and is he older? Um. 
I think it's right after he kills uh, the buggers, if I remember right. And he doesn't know he did that until the end of the book. Right. <laughs> well, well, I guess I'm giving spoilers for the book for him, but it's remake. No, it's all good. I've, they've said that they were going to make a movie for it. But there is one. It, it, it has Harrison Ford in it. I never watched it. It actually came out? Yeah, I never watched it. There's definitely. It must not be very good, is it? I don't know. If I, like, I never really followed into it. Harrison Ford's in it, really. I'm pretty sure. He's, he's hit and miss. He's the old guy that, uh, the old space fight, fighter pilot that fought during the first war against the buggers. I forget his name now. Uh, and he's I don't ha- remember. And his mentor, right? The one that's running him through everything. And, okay. And so I believe that's maybe Graf or something like that. Or maybe he's, I can't remember the name. But uh, I know that's who Harrison Ford plays in it. Okay. Do you prefer science fiction to fantasy? Or is it kind of a draw? Uh, yeah, I, I love both of them. I kind of moved back and forth. Uh, so recently was sci-fi, uh, but I'm getting back into fantasy, reading one of my favorite fantasy novels again, Name of the Wind. Uh, yeah, which I want to read after you tell oh, me about it's it. It's so good, dude. Uh, this is my third time reading it, so I like to go back and read some of my favorite ones every now and then. And so, uh, yeah, and I, I love a fantasy novel or a science fiction novel where I can go back and read it, and I'm excited for the events to happen in the book. And so that's that's how I know how much I really like it. So I'll go back and reread those ones. What are some of the benefits you think each has? Like, are there some things fantasy can tackle that sci-fi can't and sci-fi can that fantasy can't? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So fantasy, I don't know, you get to do like the mythical things that everybody from their childhood loved to think about, like orcs and elves and stuff like that, magic. And so... That's always fun, but it's obviously constrained to the world. I guess you can make up your own world outside, but uh, there's no interstellar travel or anything like that. So I, I like how sci-fi is able to talk about more like long-term principles and just uh, being scared or being worried about or investigating into these just like human conditions. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if you know uh, Isaac Asimov, the foundation books. Yeah. Literally, the guy develops a way to predict the future by analyzing the past. And so, just, you couldn't do something like that in fantasy. Right. Or at least as much. Do you think fantasy is limited in that way then? Yeah, yeah. So, I would say probably. Because I remember reading like a, a prologue or something to Ender's Game where Orson Scott Card kind of mentions that, saying that sci fi has more freedom in addressing issues than fantasy does. I don't know if that's completely true, but I mean, it does seem, yeah, that, particularly in the sciences. Yeah, so I, mean, in, I, I guess the issue is though, is you could write a fantasy novel that deals, deals with that stuff, but at that point it kind of becomes science fiction, so. Right. I don't know. They are pretty close, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of, we talked a little bit about this, but what do you think of uh, ice and fire of uh, song of ice and fire the song of ice the and fire. game of thrones game of thrones yeah uh i love those books do you do you think they compare well to the tv show i actually like the tv show a lot i know a lot of people didn't like the ending uh and i felt like it could have been more fleshed out but and i hated once again is the final spoilers here that's good <laughs> that's right. i hated that the night king just got murdered after doing absolutely nothing but I really like kind of anticlimactic. Yeah, I really like Danny going bad though, and just burning and murdering everybody. Uh, I felt like that was building up a long time, and I felt like it was more apparent in the book how horrible she was. Uh, you know, she was freeing slaves, but at the same time, she was crucifying the slave masters, being like, "Oh, you know, I'm replacing brutality with 
free slaves, but really she was just replacing brutality with brutality. Right. And so. And something that I've heard that's pretty impressive about those series is that they're so in depth historically. Yeah. yeah. They kind of like how the Lord of the Rings, there's a deep history to it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really like the, uh, how they added like the lords and lieges and people that owe them fealty and stuff like that and how it actually mattered in there. Uh, because I mean, as much as I love the Lord of the Rings, when Gondor and Rohan have to fight, they're like, bring me my army. And there's 8,000 men ready to fight. Uh, whereas in George R. R. Martin's books, uh, the army is loyal to their Lord and he may have sworn fealty to some other Lord, but in the end, they're not loyal to that guy above you know he's a vassal to him but their loyalty is to the direct lord so if the direct lord's like fuck you i'm out uh he's gonna take his two thousand soldiers with him mm-hmm. and the supreme lord the his lord above him is gonna be just shit out of luck because people those... say people do make a lot of comparisons with lord of the rings and with are they distinct though i mean in... I'm, I'm really bad at this i mean i loved uh the will of time and I don't know how many times people critique me but like oh it's just the Lord of the Rings I'm like, oh, shit, I yeah don't. Uh, uh, people so, say that I haven't read those though I'd like to yeah so I'm really bad at making that comparison and then getting upset over it okay uh, so well, dude well sweet man um yeah you got 41 minutes 41 minutes well done I think that's well done all right dude we'll do this again all right thanks Kevin all right.